it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Hi there, you're listening to One Sensational Shot. This is The Evening Glass with Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton where we talk about the latest things that we've managed to catch at the cinema or maybe on the television. If it's moving and if it has audio, uh, we're going to try and talk about it. So that's that's the general gist. I uh, was going to talk to you guys this evening about Thor Ragnarok, the ninth highest grossing film of 2017 so far. What an big, accolade. Big, uh, Big, big accolade there. Uh, film stars don't die in Liverpool, which was a real favourite of mine. Uh, Fletcher, my dear friend and co-host, how are you doing? And is there anything that you should uh, bring to the attention of the listening audience as of this week? As usual, I've got a few ideas, and theories and <laughs> opinions percolating away in my mind, but I'll save that for a little bit later. I want to get on with the reviews because I am eager to hear what you found to enjoy in Ragnarok. Absolutely. So Thor Ragnarok, like I said, uh, of course, it's still tearing up the box office, but it's been out a few weeks now. DC Comics have uh, just released Justice League, which pushed Thor uh, to just one or two screens at my local multiplex instead of about 800 or whatever it was, <laughs> whatever it was doing. Um, it was certainly the big film of the moment. And um, we were, Lex and I, when we were going to... Uh, going to go and see it we we would like to see thor we were saying uh not least because we do dip in and out of the marvel uh, universe from time to time but this one of course is directed by taka waititi which is a uh, friend of ours friend of the show as it were uh director of course of uh, hunt for the wilder people and uh, uh we were looking forward to some of that kind of kiwi humor that was clearly going to be coming through uh into the film so yeah it was it was time to get down to the multiplex and uh, and see see Thor Ragnarok. Um, so, like I mentioned, tearing it up, but it is the ninth currently the ninth highest grossing film of the year. I did did wonder, Fletch, would you want to hazard a guess as to what the biggest film of the year worldwide is thus far? Wow! And you've got to cast your mind back. We I'll give you a clue as well. We we covered it. I spoke about it on an earlier podcast, right in the first couple of months of this year, maybe. Oh, the, oh right. the first kind of three months. Beauty and the Beast. Yes, well done. All right. So it's another another Disney property. So I saw the posters for the new Charles Dickens adaptation biopic. It seems to cast Charles Dickens as having been literally visited by the ghosts that he then writes about. It's one of those. I, it's a device that's been used a few times, and I can't quite remember in what films, but I'm sure as soon as we come off air, they'll flow directly to my cranium. But uh, in looking at that, and I thought, oh, Dan Stevens, yeah, I don't mind him. I liked him in The Guest by Barrett and Wingard. And uh, and I thought, why did he do that Beauty in the Beast? Because I've seen the pictures of him, you know, green bodysuit, wearing stilts. I thought, what mm. a ball like it must have been to participate in that um, for very little payoff because he's, I know, he's barely on screen. You can see his memorable, lovely eyes. Lovely, lovely eyes. But mm. the rest of him you don't really see. And to in- all intents and purposes, you know, somebody else could quite easily perform that character and then you remind me why it's useful for him to take a role like that. I'm, I should imagine his agent will say, this is going to be big. Don't underestimate how big this will be. Two or three months of pretty hard work for an actor, especially if, uh, Dan Stevens, who's used to putting on a cummerbund, and, and that's about it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that will, I think that will open markets for him. Yeah, Disney absolutely owning 2017 thus far. Um, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Thor Ragnarok. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, of course, we're yet for the yet to have the new Star Wars film. I'm sure that's going to do good business. Mm. Um, and there's also Spider-Man: Homecoming, which I suppose um, distributed by Sony Pictures, but they've got some kind of deal going on with Sony these days, haven't they? Mm. But um, uh, also, Pirates of the Caribbean is in is in the top ten of the year so far. Uh, Dead Men Tell to- uh, Dead Men Tell No oh, Tales. Oh, was that this year? Javier Bardem was in that one, right? Yeah, I believe so. I actually missed that one. Didn't didn't catch that one. Well, to, but say anyway, that, to say that you missed it would suggest that you had any intention of seeing it. Surely, you, rather than missing it, you deliberately avoided it like you would, you know, uh, a fox dead on the road. <laughs> Come on, at this point, you can't be excited to see another Pirates of the Caribbean. No, I'm I'm not. It's uh, I, I enjoyed the first run of three, I have to say. Hmm. Um, I, was, I was in sixth form when that first movie hit in 2003. 
and um, or, or maybe just uh, yeah, just in between uh, like high school and sixth form. So I, I I was a good market for it, I guess. I, I and I really really enjoyed that first movie, and uh, the sequels were fine. Um, I thought people were a little unfair to the second one. But uh, yeah, by this point, I like, I did avoid Dead Men Tell No Tales. I had no interest in it. Worth. Oh, it's not even called that in this country. It's Shanzar's Shanzar's Revenge or something. I can't remember. But listeners, do write in if you did catch that Pirates, and uh, maybe it wasn't that bad. It's in the top ten for God's sake. So um, it obviously it obviously did well. Where are we? You have no idea. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. Oh, I've missed this. And you and I had a fight recently. Did I win? No, I won easily. Doesn't sound right. Well, that's true. That brings us on to Thor Ragnarok, which I really should uh, try and get back to. So the first two Thor films, I don't know if you've seen them at all, Fletch. They're not that great, if I'm perfectly honest. Kenneth Branagh, um, we were talking about him last week with uh, Murder on the Orient Express. He actually directed the first one the second one he did the first and alan moore did the second is it alan Alan taylor sorry alan taylor i think is the name of the fellow yeah but here we are with um uh taka waititi waititi which i hope i'm uh nailing and and pronouncing right but yeah obviously directing hunt for the wilder people back in 2016 which featured in your films of uh, 2016 fletch when we were kicking off the show with uh, some of your top picks from last year and of course what we do in the shadows which is that great spoof um, vampire <laughs> yeah. mockumentary and really really satisfying it uh, BBC replayed it not so long ago no doubt in anticipation of, the, of this Thor film uh, and it's, it's such a fun film it really is up there with um, obviously that mockumentary style of Spinal Tap but with that incredibly dry Kiwi sense of humour which I find really really amusing mm. and that sense of humour is throughout <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, I have to say. It, it's it's dripping in it. It's a laugh a minute. It's m- much more akin with the Guardians of the Galaxy films, not least because the setting isn't really on Earth. You're out in space an awful lot more. And uh, it's it's an incredibly fun, satisfying romp of a film. I think this is the kind of film that they invented the word romp for. So I appreciate most... Uh, by the time you guys uh, probably hear this podcast, it, it will be winding up at the box office. I'm sure there'll be some showings here and there. But um, like I say, that dry sense of humour throughout. In fact, Takaway Titi himself does make a guest appearance at one of the standout characters, one of the real pieces of comic relief. Uh, not, I mean, everyone is a comic relief in this film, uh, but there's a character called Korg, which is CG character, and uh, Takaway Titi does the voice of Korg, and he's he's absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to completely ruin the accent. I probably shouldn't bother doing it, but <laughs> like he he he's in this gladiatorial arena, and he's he's kind of like, well, I'm the lead, I'm kind of the leader here. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get in a spaceship. Uh, you can come along if you want. <laughs> it's it really is good fun and uh, absolutely fantastic. And of course, um, I'd be remiss if I did not mention um jeff goldblum uh again ideally a friend of the show mr jeff goldblum being a big jurassic park fan of course i've my love for mr goldblum runs deep and fletcher i don't know if you're aware of this you you may well be in your news feed i am a fan of uh, a facebook page which is that same picture of jeff jeff goldblum every day and it's just the same picture of jeff goldblum looking seductively into the camera which they they up they just uh put into a news feed every single day uh so big big jeff goldblum fan here he's um plays a character he kind of plays a baddie i suppose he he um is uh, i think he's the collect is he the collector or is he that chap from one of the others no collector uh, uh, that one i do know because i watch guardians of the galaxy collector is benicio del toro oh you're but right no you're absolutely Goldblum right in this one is related to collector grandmaster he's the grandmaster so he he lives on this planet where he he basically collects um people uh waifs and strays of the universe pits them in a gladiatorial arena against each other and um he's again wonderfully droll wonderfully dry uh jeff goldblum really does steal every scene he's in and uh, it's it's a really really fun satisfying film. I'm trying. It's a couple of weeks since I've seen it, so I'm trying to come up with um, some more specifics. But of course, um, Kate Blanchett is uh, a fantastic baddie as well. She's really the big bad, and is uh, the sister or yeah, not half sister, the actual sister, secret sister, I should say, of uh, Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston's characters. Uh, and Tom Hiddleston, I should say, is back as well. So uh, yeah, it's um, absolutely jam packed with good gags. 
Mark Ruffalo's Hulk is back in a big way and um, is almost as much a character in the film as Thor is, certainly from the latter half. And it really just has this great sense of... Um, uh, wait, you know, waves and strays, mishmashed people, a ragtag group of people thrown together and having to having to learn to team up and, and fight. But like I say, with this wonderfully dry Kiwi sense of humour throughout the whole thing. So it, re- it really is worth seeing. It's certainly a film I would ne- wouldn't turn over or turn off if, uh, if it's on the telly box uh, in the coming weeks and months. But I don't know if you're going to get a chance to see it, Fletch. I will try to. There's things that might come ahead of it, but I have been considering all of this year, really, as we've increasingly come to terms with the... <clears throat> with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its third iteration, the Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and mostly most of the sequels that are coming out, but also the um, the exploration of the brand and the genuine innovation within it, like taking hold of Taika Waititi, because Mark Webb, Josh Trank, the independent-minded directors that we've talked about in the past who've been given big studio franchises have then uh, been suppressed any interesting avenues they may have wandered down, they've been immediately pulled back as though on a bungee cord and said, no, 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 do exactly as we tell you. In Barton Fink, when he says, I want you to give me that Barton Fink feeling, and then by the end of the movie he's telling him, I've got 50 writers can give me that Barton Fink feeling. But it does seem on Ragnarok that uh, Kevin Feige, or Feige, or Feige, mm. I'm never sure mm. how to pronounce his name. I would say Feige, but I think I'm wrong. He's done superbly in stewarding this brand extension through cinema for the last now it's it's only 10 years isn't it it's only 10 9 10 years since iron man i think it will stand testament to his incredible ability especially when balanced against so many of the big franchises that have fallen almost at the first hurdle uh when terminator was brought back for the christian bale version mm. it did okay but you know, critics were well, not, not good enough to, yeah, and, yeah. and didn't do the box office that and was the, needed for the, the same two with, planned sequels. The same with Genesis as well. These films, although they make money, they very rarely get more than a two or three out of five. The DC universe is is tanking both critically and commercially. It vacillates between the two. Suicide Squad made plenty of money, but was regarded as a critical turkey. Uh, What's this one even called? Justice League. Seems yeah. to be both critically unheralded think, yeah, yeah. and not making money. Meanwhile, Marvel goes on and on. And uh, especially with, with Ragnarok, a director's been chosen with a, with a particular vision. And specifically what I thought about this year is something I've chatted with a few friends about. In the 80s, Martin Brest directed Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. We had action capers, which were humorous and action-packed uh, chase features, kind of joyful anti-hero protagonists. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's the, the deal, that's the niche that it's fulfilling at the moment. Its films at their best are full of humour and mm-hmm. hissable baddies, hissable uh, um, self-reflexive baddies and enjoyable jerk heroes guardians of the galaxy and its sequel seemingly mm. thor ragnarok a couple of the others as well and and yeah so i'm interested in we've lost they're no longer 15 rated or 18 rated films but that i think that's why the marvel cinematic universe is doing particularly well because those adult caper pictures are no longer being made but they are, mm. in, in a more adolescent milieu, they are being made and chances are being taken on interesting directors. On occasion, you know, as I said, uh, Alan Taylor doesn't fill me with excitement, neither do the Russo brothers. But uh, Ryan Cooch... Is it Cooja? I always second-guess myself because he's got such an unusual name. The fellow from Fruitvale, yeah, from Fruitvale Station and Creed. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal for Stallone to go with him for Creed. Mm. I like that, I, and I like the the film Creed as well. But seeing, I'm very pleased that Taika Waititi and Kuja are being are given their opportunity. Uh, it certainly beats perfunctory television directors. I mean, Shane Black, I would say as as well. It was great that Robert Downey brought him back in. So 
Yeah, that's a very long and rambling answer. <laughs> the short version <laughs> you... of that, the cliff notes on that is, yes, I will try to see it. And uh, as any regular listener knows, I speak with such ignorance whenever I find myself reversing into a cul-de-sac of Marvel Cinematic Universe because I've seen only four or five of the films. We spend an inordinate amount of time talking about things that actually I don't know anything about. And I think that's ironic because <laughs> you could find a hundred podcasts where they couldn't even spell Coppola, but they know all about <laughs> the Iron Man films. And here we are. Our raison d'etre is kind of 70s, 80s, 90s cinema. But we inevitably say, yeah, what's happening at the moment? These 17 films that I've barely seen. <laughs> I will be boning up there. Well, there's uh, plenty more to come in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as you know. The third Avengers film, which is due out um, relatively soon. I think that might even be next year. That's going to be split across two films. So uh, there's there really is a tremendous amount, uh, uh, amount more to look forward to. But Thor Ragnarok... Definitely worth a watch. And to be honest with you, um, you wouldn't have to watch any of the other films to, to enjoy it. It really is um, uh, just it just stands on its own completely. So uh, I'd highly recommend it to, to anyone at home listening. Um, happy to move on to another film I managed to catch at the cinema. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. Like Fletch said, we did trail it not so long ago. And uh, it's um, a bit of a, I suppose you could call it a romantic drama. Uh, it's directed by, and I'm going to massacre this one. Uh, it's Paul McGuigan. Mc, uh, McGuigan. I think it's McGuigan. Just Paul McGuigan. That's an easy one. Oh right, I need to say it quicker. <laughs> Paul McGuigan, and uh, we've got Annette Benning and Jamie Bell. Billy Elliot himself, Mr. Jamie Bell, in this picture. Uh, the script as well. Um, if I bring up my notes, is uh, written by uh, the chap. Do you remember uh, Fletch? The Joy Division biopic Control. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, I I never got a chance to see it, and I I do like the Joy Division, as you know, and the New Order. Uh, and this film is written by the same chap who wrote Control, uh, Matt Greenhull, and uh, yeah, he's um he wrote this one. So is this like a date? You look beautiful. That's Gloria Graham, big name in black and white films. Proper star she was. I recognise that pal. <laughs> Won an Oscar too. It's unbelievable. The air is just full of uh, yeah Hollywood horseshit. What kind of a person hangs out in a joint where you're labelled on the lampshade anyway? So anyway, like I say, um, we've got Jamie Bell uh, playing Peter Turner, uh, whose memoir this film is actually based on. So this is true story stuff. Uh, and then Annette Benning is playing an ageing former film star, Gloria Graham. Real person, like I say. And Gloria was big basically in the 40s and 50s. Uh, at one point in the film, there's... There's a barman who sort of grabs Jamie Bell and says, hey, she was a really big film star. Uh, and uh, I was doing a bit of research because I, I wasn't that familiar with her. She's lost the footnotes of history a little bit, but she she did have a, a, a role in It's a Wonderful Life and she actually got an Oscar nomination in 1947 for the film Crossfire. But I think by the mid-50s, uh, her star was certainly uh, waning. And uh, like I say, based on uh, the memoir of Peter Turner, so it's a true story, and that's the character that Jamie Bell is playing. We open, the film basically opens with Annette Benning's character, Gloria Graham, uh, in the backstage of uh, a theatre, and she collapses. She's clearly very, very ill. And uh, Jamie Bell gets uh, a phone call where they say, it's your uh, it's your Gloria, so you need to go see her. So, so Gloria then appeals to, uh, appeals to Peter and says... Um, get me back to Liverpool and maybe I could heal there. So he takes back to Liverpool, takes her back to his mum and dad's house. Uh, Julie Walters uh, is playing Jamie's mum and she, she's fantastic in it. So it's the second time this week I saw her in a film because she was in Paddington too. They will, we'll reserve that for uh, maybe another podcast when you've managed to catch up with uh, with Paddington. But uh, anyway, uh, long story short, I'm getting very, very sidetracked. Um, Gloria then comes back to, to, to um, Peter's uh, house, the family house. And... Uh, 
we then flash back to a few years prior. The film opens in about, I don't know, 81, 82, and then we go back to the very late 70s um, where Jamie Bell's character is in a house, um, shared house in London, and Gloria's introduced as the, the, the lady girl next door, lady next door. She's another tenant in this big shared house. He's a struggling actor, and uh, again, the landlady sort of says, oh, I think she used to be a big actress, so... Uh, they have this wonderful exchange when they first meet where she says, oh, have you have you seen the film Saturday Night Fever? In this wonderful sing-songy kind of American accent that, that she has, because, like I say, ageing American film star, uh, and sounds a little bit you know, Marilyn Monroe, that very sing-songy kind of voice. And uh, Jamie says, uh, Jamie Bell says, oh, I'll, I've been to see Saturday Night Fever three times. She says, oh, so you like disco dancing? And he says... Um, well, I like drunk dancing. <laughs> and she says, uh, oh, so you, can you come in and, and help me help me learn to practice to dance? And he says, well, I could come in, I could clean your bathroom for you. There's, there's this wonderful kind of exchange between the two of them. And uh, you you kind of instantly fall in love with, with their relationship. It does seem to be quite sincere and, and playful, a little bit flirty. And uh, they end up, there's wonderful throws back just to, just to the time of the late 70s because not only, I mean, I'm a big sucker for anything, period, anyway. I like seeing the old cars. I like seeing the old outfits, uh, whether it's the 1870s or the 1970s. You know, I really just like period uh, pieces in, in, in film and TV. And they go to see Alien, 1979 Alien, and they, they, you actually see them in the theatre watching the Chesspurster scene with uh, John Hurt's character. And uh, Jamie Bell's character completely freaking out when uh, when there's all the blood on the screen and all that kind of thing, <laughs> the chest burst that comes through. So there's this wonderful moment there. And um, then she says something along the lines of, um, yeah, you've you got to watch out when the, the little ones come out, come from between your legs. And then it, it kind of dawns on him that, ah, so she's got kids. And it turns out she has four kids who yeah. you don't really see on screen, but... Um, uh, Long story short, she clearly has a past. Jamie uh, Bell's character begins to be- better understand that over time. And you do slowly begin to fall in love with them. But then, of course, the story then just time hops all over the place. We come back to the early 80s as she's getting increasingly ill. And this is where the film actually really works because it, it turns from a, a romantic comedy in the vein of Harold and Maud, where you know two dispossessed people find each other with a huge age difference find each other in life and get something out of it and and out of the relationship and find a, a better way of living together it goes from that to you're then jarred back into that 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 illness that we first saw her in the opening scene with and slowly but surely it's a it's a real study about what it is like to have a terminal illness and what that means and in uh, Gloria's case, she is of course in Liverpool with uh, with Jamie's uh, Jamie Bell's family, and her family, of course, are then back in the states. And you know, do, do, she doesn't want to tell them, but do you talk to them? She has children, but beyond, beyond all that, I think it really is this just seeing someone deteriorate to such a degree and it was very very touching it was it was incredibly moving just that like i say just that that real character study of what it's like to see someone uh, fade away and not only has her star faded of course but she her health is then fading as well but the love that the two share is clearly very very sincere uh, and that's really what carries through through the film so uh, film stars don't die in liverpool i absolutely adored it i have to say it was uh, well worth a watch i and then it's good doing a little bit of research just about the people because like i say this is um this is this is real life these are real people this really happened uh so it's definitely good to, to go and do a bit of research there yourself but film stars don't die in liverpool hopefully uh, by the time this podcast go out, goes out you should still be able to catch it at the cinema but i'd highly recommend it uh and fletch maybe maybe that'll be one you managed to catch I might give it a go, yeah. <clears throat> it's coming to the Watermans. Paul McGuigan's a director I've never been able to get a handle on. He moves between television and film. I'll, so I'll give you an idea of what he's done recently. Victor Frankenstein. With both of them, actually, Radcliffe and McAvoy, which didn't do anything. And didn't he do episodes of Sherlock? The or the um, BBC Sherlock? Yeah, he did that too. Um, the films of his I've seen are Lucky Number Slevin, which I didn't like. And The Reckoning, which I thought was decent, Paul Bettany, and his most famous film, Gangster Number no. 1, Paul Bettany, that came out about 18 years ago. But I've always been 
it's odd to me that a Scottish director without a particular uh, without a particular niche can move so freely from project to project. Uh, just taking on B pictures, I suppose. Yeah, he's interesting to me. Um, and so this came out somewhat, but this came seemed to come out without fanfare, and it really it should. Annette Benning is a very impressive actress. And I still mm. consider her to be a film star in the way that Michelle Pfeiffer is. I suppose it's because you and I grew up in the 80s and 90s with Sharon Stone, Michelle, Annette Benning, mm. Demi Moore. And we still, in, in some ways, even though they're not necessarily good actresses, as is the case with Demi Moore, we think of them as, oh, Demi Moore's in another film. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. A comeback for Sharon Stone. They still have a cachet about them. So what's, what are we moving on to? Happy Death Day, Murder on the Orient Express. Well, tell you what, those are the last two that I want to talk about, but let's uh, switch it up a little bit because Murder on the Orient Express would be another uh, uh, lush British film. So let's let's switch it up a little. Let's get a Happy Death Day. Um, and I suppose the first thing to say, uh, Happy Death Day has uh, is the latest from the kind of the indie horror guys, the production company known as Blumhouse, which of course people will be familiar with uh, through the likes of Get Out, and Paranormal Activity, and most recently The Purge. I've only seen the first one, but I think there's three Purge films now, isn't there? They kind of churn yeah. them out. Um, They've got uh, the, the, all of these, I think all of these films, Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Sinister, they all, they're all they all at least trilogies already. They're really knocking them out. Um, which, you know, harks back to the VHS heyday of the 80s. Oh, I'm yeah, behind yeah, that, yeah. You know, There's room it's in not, the marketplace for that. It's not a criticism whatsoever. And mm. uh, in the likes of Get Out, they're producing fantastic films. Uh, Happy Death Day doesn't quite, for me, get to the level that, that Get Out does. It's pretty derivative, but I hasten to add, uh, is very open and knowing about how derivative it is. So it really has a lot of classic horror movie locations. Uh, you've got hospital corridors. You've got creepy uh, multi-story car parks. Underpasses. There's an underpass not too far from us that looks like it's from a horror film. And this one features. It features in this film as well. In short, it's basically a slasher film, teen slasher movie, but with the twist, the added twist, that it, it, it's it it's got a ho- healthy dollop of Groundhog Day in there as well. Funnily enough, uh, it's actually directed by a chap I was not immediately aware of. I had to look into him, Christopher B. Landon. I looked into him, and it's all that Blumhouse stuff, actually. So he was a writer on Disturbia, but Paranormal Activity 2, 3, 4... Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones as well. So he's, that's, that's all the paranormal activities apart from the first one. He was he was pretty much there. Um, I didn't also didn't know this. He was also the son of late actor uh, Michael Landon, which is quite quite interesting Highway to me. Highway to Heaven, but, yeah. He used to yeah. have to watch that sometimes. And when I say have to, right, it's not like my parents were into it. But Luke and I come from the days when there weren't many channels and that was just what was on on a Sunday. And if, if you found yourself in front of the television... For, you watched it. I don't. I can't even explain it. It was just on, and you watched it, and you thought, "This sucks." I wish yeah. I wasn't watching Highway to Heaven <laughs> with his mate with the cap and the beard. You know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. No, it's just maybe that's what we need now. Maybe people seem miserable. Like teenagers seem miserable. Uh, men- mental health issues are more pronounced than ever before, and I always blame it on capitalism and everybody having to work every hour of the day so they can't be a parent. But maybe they're miserable because they're always doing what they want to do. When we were young, and I'm, I had to watch which, all good dogs go to heaven. I yeah, really, I used dogs to, Delavies, Yeah, I um, used to sit there as a little kid thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't know <laughs> why am I watching this. <laughs> I don't know if, and maybe being understimulated or occasionally bored or dissatisfied with what we had on, maybe that was part of it. I don't know. I don't know. That's completely spitballing. But um, I. Uh, he did Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, which I've wanted to catch for a couple of years now, because it's got like odd people that I like, like David Koechner's in there. Um, how was it? So at the time, I think I, you must remember I texted you that night. I got back on the bus, hmm. and I texted you very, very unfairly with "Happy Death Day" is a feature film, because it wasn't. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. It didn't do a lot for me yeah. uh since since having watched it though you know what i've softened to it to the point where i wouldn't even mind watching it when it comes on the tv again um 
it's 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 a bit of fun and when i really was reflecting on it because it revels in how derivative it is groundhog day is even mentioned by name in the film for example mm-hmm. uh it's um uh, i think that there's there's a lot of fun to be to be had there and you know it's it's a six out of ten seven out of ten kind of a film but as far as teen uh, uh slasher picks go it's a pretty harmless one it's a pretty decent one uh, and also breakout star i will i will uh, underline here is jessica roth uh, roth or roth I'm probably getting that wrong. But Tree uh, Gelblum is her character's name. She's incredibly watchable. She's the lead character throughout. And and like I say, it's this Groundhog Day thing. So she is living through the same day. She's a reprehensible, nasty person on her college campus. She's forced to live the same day until, of course, uh, she can A, become a better person, but B... what she's really trying to do is figure out who is trying to kill her, and through through trying to figure out her own killer, in her, in her in her own film, she then learns to become a better person. That's that's the the conceit of the film. So that's that's the movie, and I I think she's fantastic. She's incredibly expressive with her face, and the only other thing I'm familiar with of hers, even when I was looking at her online, is La La Land. She's one of Emma Stone's pals in La La Land. Do you remember? the Emma Stone uh, musical number, I think it might be the first one, when her and her pals are dancing through the flat, talking about going out that night, and they're going to go out on the, on the town to this this party, this which they know will be vacuous and a load of rubbish, but they're looking, you know, they'll go out anyway, because that's what you do uh, in, in, in La La Land. So she's one of the girls who is singing, and one of Emma Stone's pals. This is, of course, her, her lead role in Happy Death Day, and I think she's going to be one to watch for the future. Really, really great talent, and uh, was incredibly watchable. Really carried the whole film throughout, from beginning to end. Big supporter of it. What I also thought was interesting was it really did remind me of. Uh, do you remember that Megan Fox film, Jennifer's Body? Yeah, by and Diablo I, Cody. Yeah, sure. What was funny when I went back into this, um, I think this had, this film had been um, uh, prepped and, and 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 produced incredibly quickly, but I think it had been a script that had been knocking about for around a decade. And uh, I actually came across a Business Insider article, uh, which was all about this, um, how it took nearly 10 years to make the horror movie Happy Death Day. And funnily enough, within there, I noticed that Megan Fox, at one point in 2007, had been connected to the film when it was called, <laughs> when it was called Half to Death. I'm, I find it at least diverting that, like Groundhog Day, it, its narrative has its character improving themselves and becoming a better person during the course of events. That's quite unusual for it. Too many horror films... Many horror films really don't have a, a plot in that way, so that's at least interesting. And many time loop pictures like 1201 and that one episode Monday of the X-Files, they don't necessarily have someone improving themselves. I mean, that's the, the central conceit of Groundhog Day, although it's implied that he retains his cynicism at the end. He does, he does become a better person, you know, there's a point to it. Murder on the Orient Express. Shall I rattle through this one as well? Yeah, or did please. You want to? Sure. So Murder on the Orient Express, I'm sure that you guys uh, listening at home, especially by the time this podcast goes out, would not have been able to move without seeing some kind of marketing uh, for this one. And um, I think we we're all very much aware of the source material, Agatha Christie, murder, who done it. In this instance, for this particular movie, this is written by Michael Green, who most of you guys will be familiar with in terms of Logan. Uh, I think he wrote Blade Runner 2049 and also has a story by credit for Alien Covenant. Uh, and previous to that was big in the TV land for Sex and the City, Heroes and Smallville. And I think that this version of Murder in the Orient Express is actually a lot like Blade Runner 2049, Logan, Alien Covenant, in the fact that it's a modern blockbuster trying to reach that slightly older audience. It's trying to be a little bit more brainy, which which makes eminent sense. And, you know, there's a market for that. And, you know, I hope it's catered to. Um, as a result, I think, of the source material, and one of the only drawbacks I would say is that it's not necessarily the most cinematic of films. It's very much... It, there is that sense of, oh, I wish they made them... You know, they don't make them like they used to. Oh, I guess they do, because... We do have, um, obviously, an all-star cast. And, like, I'm sure you guys have all seen the side of buses uh, most recently 
with this film on. We've got Kenneth Branagh, of course, who directed it as well, but he's playing Pyro. We've got Penelope Cruz, William Defoe, Judy Dench, Johnny Depp, Josh Gad, Michelle Pfeiffer. The list goes on, and uh, everyone has their role to, role to play in this big who done it. But of course, it's not. Uh, at the end of the day, it does. Re- it's a novel originally, and it does read a little bit more like a play. Uh, and of, and the film itself um, plays with the set in a great way, and I think that's where they try to they try to be cinematic with some CG sweeping shots of the train going through the snow and and across rickety looking bridges in this grandiose scale. And there are some there are some wonderful big CG map painting shots of scenery that are are pretty breathtaking. But the film itself, the drama, of course, is a very human kind of a drama, and it's all about being very close inside a carriage, and uh, and and in that sense, it certainly feels a lot, lot, lot more like a play. But they do do some wonderful things with the set. They clearly replicated a tremendous amount of the Orient Express, if not you know most of it, and they ha- they do play with people going through different carriages, the camera following them. Uh, I think most people listening will have seen the trailer where the camera goes. It, it, it's from Kenneth Branagh, Pryor's eyes. It's literally going through the carriage uh, as it as it zooms in on each individual person that's sitting in the dining cart. All of the names I just mentioned are all sitting there. They're all suspects, and you get that sense. And when actually the murder does happen, there's there's a great moment where the camera is suspended in the air, and it's above the set, and you see them going from you know carriage uh, carriage room to carriage room, compartment to compartment, and you sort of see just over the character's shoulders, if you like, when they're seeing the horror of the body on the floor. There's, and and, and that's, that stuff's all wonderful and great. Um, but like I say, not necessarily the most cinematic of, of things. It's probably why, although there have been films of it in the past, Murder in the Orient Express tends to lend itself, and, and, and Agatha Christie and Pyro tends to let it lend itself to more of a, of TV fare. But nevertheless, in this instance, um, they gave it a good go. On that same breath, the opening was was really great fun. So one of the great things they did with this, and I'm not overly familiar with the source material. I've never read an Agatha Christie, so I, I, I don't think she does this in the novels herself, but they have a great... that You know how the Indiana Jones and James Bond movies have that great device where it ends with the... It begins with the ending of, like, the last adventure or the last film and and you yeah. get a sense of that in this one it's got quite an explosive opening which, which is really good fun and it, it's almost like the climax of the last movie uh, and that's how you introduced uh, uh hercule pryro if i'm uh, pronouncing that correctly as well a pretty solid film and a piece of work and of course it is held together by the um by the cast who are all all very wonderful all get their teeth around the dialogue very very well but like i say feels a little bit more like a play rather than uh, a big cinematic um, piece of work. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He, he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. Good God, murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. If there was a murderer... What is going on? Then there was a murderer. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. Kenneth Branagh seems to be seems to be into this stuff, doesn't he? So we started with Shakespeare um, back in the day, but now he's, you know, directing... Thor and Cinderella pictures for Disney and yeah. this kind of thing. So it's interesting to see how his career has gone and uh, whether this one will will bear any further fruit in terms of adaptations for the big screen of Agatha Christie. And it certainly teases at the, at the end. There is a teaser of an, of another novel of hers where you, you you assume you're then he's walking off into the next story into the next novel. It was quite good fun, you know, to go and see. It was good fun to see in an audience. Uh, you know, it was a packed cinema. You know what? The, the one thing I'll say about it, for better or worse, you know, it's not something that I'm going to be rushing to purchase on home video or anything like that. But like I mentioned, there is at least an attempt with the likes of Logan, Blade Runner 2049, Alien Covenant, all the films I just mentioned, to have a kind of brainy uh, blockbuster film that can still try and put bums on seats. Although I think all three of those haven't necessarily achieved that. But it, it tries to put bums on seats. Uh, but isn't just completely uh, mindless and, and brain dead. 
And mm. with with this one, one of the things that I lament the loss of since the 90s is the, is the family film. This isn't strictly a family film, I suppose, but this is the, definitely the kind of film where you could take um, a teenager, yourself, your nan... Your dad and your gran, <laughs> off mm-hmm. to Timbuktu, and you, you know you could go and you could go and watch this film, and every, everyone can get something out of it, and everyone can enjoy it. And I and I think that, I think there is still a market for that, and I think it's something that we've started to lose as cinemas uh, come into this modern age, where things are so segmented, and and you have your target audience and your target market, and you completely hone your film for that particular target market. This is a film that doesn't really tend to do that. Um, I, I think they they know that there's going to be some older people going to see it. This, this maybe the Sunday afternoon crowd or the the mid afternoon weekday crowd who are, you know, trying to avoid uh, the kids and and the younger people. But on that same breath, like I say, you could still go on a Saturday evening with with uh, the whole family and you would get something out of it. It'd be a decent night out. So there you go. That's Murder on the Orient Express as far as as far as I'm concerned. And again, in in the same way I talked to you about Breathe, Fletch. I can't see you rushing out to go and see Murder on the Orient Express. Am I wrong? You're correct. You are correct. I do want to catch it because I want to see how it's been executed. If it's been executed in a way that really demands spending that amount of money on a new cinematic adaptation of something that was a film 40 years ago. Uh, yeah, 40 years ago, I think. Um, so I've, I've got vague interest in it and I'll catch it when it comes on to Sky. I think you make an interesting point about segmentation and I wonder if the Marvel films are now fulfilling at one time that they're appealing to several different groups because they're those films are usually 12 A's right mm-hmm. and uh, so they're action films but they're unlike the action films we grew up on from the set uh, from the 80s and 90s violent but not bloody and they have the humour in them that we would have found in uh, knockabout comedies of the 80s and 90s. For instance, Lethal Weapon and Midnight Run. So they have in them uh, the kind of humour that would have been in a buddy cop picture. Uh, but you're right. Instead of making it... So when James Cameron made Titanic, he happened to make a film which hit all demographics. That was what made... Hollywood wet itself with the potential, although, of course, he spent his own money making it and there were predictions that it would be Waterworld, it would be Heaven's Gate. But in casting Leonardo DiCaprio, it got in teenage girls, essentially, and if you get teenage girls in, teenage boys will follow. But it went right up to, presumably, people in their 60s, 70s and 80s even. You know, If there was one film that old people saw that year, it was Titanic. But... I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe, instead of catering to all ages, has probably pitched pitched itself and said, this is a film for 17-year-olds, and we expect consumers in their 30s and even into their 40s to still be in touch with their teenage sensibilities, to be mm. able to reduce expectations and dampen down their sophistication to the extent that they do want to go and see this. And as Luke and I often talk about, we're not, quite there a lot of the time it takes a little bit more like Taika Waititi directing Ragnarok will get me to see Ragnarok mm. Shane Black helming Iron Man 3 got me along to that but generally I think my cinematic interests are better uh, explored elsewhere I'm, I'm not sure I'm just talking around a topic there like we usually do I mean I'm just thinking about the themes I suppose I'd like to hear what other, what listeners have to say about that but I think what's expected of a cinema audience now is a certain level of infantilization, which I'm not really down with. Um, there's, you know, complete dumb nonsense like the Transformers pictures, but then also the work of Joss Whedon. I think it's sixth form level, if that. It's probably kind of GCSE level. I'm not asking for deep philosophical introspection, but it's clear to me that a film like The Florida Project will address adult concerns. That's mm. a, that's you know that's a film which speaks to the human condition in a way that too much mainstream cinema doesn't even attempt to. Uh, And, I mean, we're comparing apples and oranges there, really, because it's a completely different sort of film. But, yeah, I I don't know. It's too big a subject area for me to dive into without having thought about it a little bit before. Sure, and and, and I hope we're not talking at odds a little bit, but I I remember as a child in the early 90s, do you remember that Warner Brothers had an imprint? They had a a, a sub-brand, if you like, which was, I think it was called Warner Family Entertainment or Warner Brothers Family Entertainment. 
and um, I think they even had Bugs Bunny would would come come out of the Warner Brothers logo, and 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 then it would have like I say the branding of Warner Warner Family Entertainment, and they were doing things like Black Beauty and the Secret Garden, and yeah, and a Little Princess. Now yeah, I didn't necessarily, I know what you mean, yeah, I didn't see all of those films. Um, I think I maybe saw one or two on home video. They were doing. I remember them doing the rounds at primary school when it was the last day before Christmas, and we could all watch. You know, they'd put a film on for us. Yeah. Um, but I miss those days a little bit, and I suppose it's a little cheeky for me to say I, I miss something that I I wasn't necessarily a part of. But I I think that there was a period where films were made for more people. And yeah, all right, the you know the Black Beauty film. It's not an adult picture, but it's one that wasn't talking down to its audience or whatever. So so everyone could get something out of it. Murder yeah. on the Orient Express is is very much of that ilk. And I, I lament that that those days, because I, I, I just think that that we do it in a day and age where, where as you say, um, things are being targeted towards, okay, well, this is for the 17-year-olds. This is, and, and then you're hoping that, that maybe that some, some other people will be just about misty-eyed enough and, and, and nostalgic enough to come along for it as well. But I, I, mm. I just enjoy, um, you know, get a decent script, decent cast. Uh, don't talk down to your audience. Uh, yeah, make sure the subject matter isn't um, too, too vulgar that you can't take a kid to see it. And then maybe everyone can have a good time together and get something out of it at least. Uh, yeah. But may- maybe I'm being a little nostalgic. That is interesting. I mean, the, what you mentioned, they were all existing properties, adaptations. And Murder on the Orient Express has its own cachet. It has a built-in audience. Um we may not relate to them, we may not know these people, but there definitely is. If you make mm. that adaptation, there is a subset of people who will definitely go along to see it. And once again, this year, it's been Christopher Nolan who's led the way in creating something at least halfway original. There aren't many films about Dunkirk. And it's That's not an true. obvious thing to make a film about because although it's a positive resolution, it's not... And the film itself is about how it's not a triumph; it's a defeat, a yeah, defeat it, that's spun as a victory. But even those involved uh, can't feel a, that way. Apollo thirteen, the successful failure, or whatever it is. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's a good analog, actually. Yeah, and Anal- yeah, because yeah. I, I remember watching a, Apollo thirteen and um, with my dad, and he couldn't remember what happened because it's the sort of thing that because it wasn't our country, you do forget over time. You can't remember if the astronauts made it back. Uh, yeah, I distinctly remember my granddad had no recollection of it whatsoever. I went to go see that film in '96 with my my dad. It's one of my fondest memories. Though I didn't do a lot just with me and my dad. That was one mm. of the on, only we went to two or three football matches, and and that film was one of the only things I've ever done just me and him. And uh, it was really special. Went to Woodbridge Cinema to see it, which m- many listeners uh, in Suffolk, some of our friends will know, is uh, a wonderful old uh, 1930s cinema uh, in in a small town, and. Yeah, I remember going, going to telling my granddad early that day or early that week. I'm going to see Apollo 13. He had no recollection whatsoever of, of the yeah. incident, but of course could remember the moon landing. So, like you say, it wasn't necessarily our country, and maybe, um, you know, wasn't so much in the public consciousness in the same way. That's precisely the point, though, isn't it? That's the point that's made in Apollo 13 that there was no longer the space race was over. America mm. had made it to the moon before the Russians, mm. and there was no longer enthusiasm for space exploration it's only because it went wrong before we move on it's been a decent year for kenneth branner he was in dunkirk and he had that cameo in mindhorn he's not an actor that works that much and he he's directing more now than he used to i'd i'd like to know how he pivoted in the way that he has as you identify i find it intriguing yes from shakespeare from the royal shakespeare country uh, country company to yeah. directing cinderella and thor i i really do find it very the intriguing. Real, the real outlier is Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit with oh, Chris yeah. Pine played Jack Ryan that time. So with uh, Cinderella and Murder on the Orient Express kind of makes sense. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to ask him about what pushed him into this. And is it just a matter of him thinking, well, this is where the work is. I need to make myself available for these projects because I'm not going to be making Shakespeare. I don't know. I don't know. This is the the, the mad thing about Kenneth Branagh is that um, he's a a very important British director, and uh, I don't know his oeuvre at all. I mean, going down his filmography, I watched Much Ado About Nothing when I was about 10 years old, and I do enjoy it. I've seen bits of Frankenstein, 
bits of Hamlet, and that's it. Yeah, and yet this I, is a I'm man that has worked as a director for almost thirty years, uh, and clearly had one niche and is now diversifying interestingly. And I don't know the bloke at all. I know more about Emma Thompson and her early work with Ben Elton, you know, Young Ones and Alfresco. Mm-hmm. I know more about her than I do about Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, I completely so, agree with you. I, I really do completely agree with you. Um, I'm going to have to look into it. Me too. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. You've been listening to The Evening Glass with Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. Hope you enjoyed it, and do let us know what you thought. You can, of course, tweet us. We're at One Sensational. And, of course, we're on Facebook if you search for One Sensational Shot. But, of course, you can always go to the website. That's onesensationalshot.com. You can get in touch with us there as well. So tweet us, Facebook us. Do get in touch with us on the website. And, of course, please do leave us iTunes reviews. Really, really helps more and more people to discover the podcast. Let us know what you're thinking. It's almost been an entire year's worth of One Sensational Shot uh, podcast action. So do let us know how you're enjoying it, if we can improve it in any way, or if there's anything, indeed, you'd like us to talk about and any films we'd like to go back and revisit, that kind of thing. Um, but most importantly, I think at the end of this year, Fletch and I are certainly going to try and uh, go back and do our films of the year, which is something that we did do right at the beginning of this year, 2017, when we were looking back on 2016. It's essentially how we kicked the podcast off. So uh, do let us know, of course, uh, what your films of the year were. And uh, Fletch and I are going to get our heads together over the next couple of weeks, get recording over the Christmas period, and uh, have a massive fight over (laughs) which films we thought were the best. But in the meantime, guys, thanks very much for listening. This is One Sensational Shot. Luke and Fletcher signing off. Thanks. You should have given me some warning. I can put the electric blankets on.